Hello and welcome to ILTV Zion News and the Blaze Radio Network. I'm Aaron Porras. And I'm Natasha Kirchuk. And coming up in today's newscast, Israel takes the gold at the World Judo Championships in Tokyo. Lebanon fires at Israeli drones in southern Lebanese airspace. And Netflix finally airs the trailer for its new upcoming series on the Israeli spy Eli Cohen. It's all congratulations for Israeli judoka Sagi Muki today. It's been less than 24 hours since he took home the gold in Tokyo at the Judo World Championships, and Israelis are still celebrating. Muki is the first male Israeli judoka to ever win the title. And as you can see in the replays, he was understandably emotional after his performance. Israel don't have world champion from the men's. My coach was the silver medal in uh, Tokyo also, 1995, and uh, Oren Smaja. And I'm so happy that I, I moved and now I'm world champion, the first world champion in men in, uh, for Israel. So it's a very special moment, not only for me, also for my country. And I'm so glad that I succeeded to do it. Prime Minister Netanyahu congratulated Muki for his win in a video chat and invited him to visit the Prime Minister's office. And he also tweeted that Muki was bringing a lot of respect and pride to all of us after Muki, a 27-year-old Netanyahu native, defeated all six of his opponents in the under-81 kilogram category. That being said, it's not like Muki was that far from the top to begin with. After all, he's already won the European gold medal twice. The real surprise here is just what happened on the way to the finals. For one, after Muki faced off against the Egyptian judoka Mohamed Abdelal in the semifinals, Abdelal refused to shake Muki's hand in a sign of disrespect. Three years ago, Egyptian judoka Islam el-Shehabi did the exact same thing after losing to Israel's Ol Sasson. And then afterwards, as Muki advanced into the finals, it's suspected that Iranian judoka Saeed Moulay threw the semifinal bout against Georgia's competitor to avoid a matchup with Muki in the next round. But either way, Muki won every match fair and square, so let's not take away from his victory. Over 834 judokas from 146 countries competed this year, and 81 of them were in the men's under 81 kilo category alone. All right, now speaking of judo, after both Iranian and Egyptian judoka snubbed Israeli competitor Sagi Muki, many are questioning why the competition has been politicized. So joining us now in the studio with some insight is Israeli sports anchor and correspondent Neil Kaplan. Thanks for joining us. All right, thanks, thanks for having me. All right, so first of all, let's just talk a little bit about Sagi himself. Was this an expected win? I don't know if it was an expected win, but I'll say it was not an unexpected win. In, in judo competitions, because of the format, the knockout format, you always have like three, four, five competitors who are contenders for the gold. Sagi was one of them in his mm-hmm. category, but it's obviously very nice to see an Israeli on the podium, first, uh, first male Israeli on the podium uh, as a gold medalist. Oh, yeah. So it, it was a big win, not an unexpected one, but a big nonetheless. And so, you know, what, what does it mean for Israel as a whole, though? 
you know, Israel is not known for being such a big uh, sports country. We're known for Nobel Prize and the Jewish brain more. <laughs> the academics. Uh, yeah, the academics. And uh, once you get such an achievement in sports, it's big, especially one year before the Olympics uh, mm -hmm. in Tokyo. So there are more expectations yeah. from Sagi. Uh, now, judo has always been some kind of favorable sports for uh, Israeli athletes. Since uh, he talked about uh, Owen Smaja, his coach who took the bronze medal in 92, uh, and uh, obviously Oris Sasson and Yarden Gerbi, uh, somehow in judo we get our achievements. We never had a gold medal uh, in the Olympics uh, in judo. Right. So now after this uh, achievement uh, of Sagi, we can have our expectations yeah, for next year as a, well. This is a big deal for the Olympics because I feel like Israelis I mean, they're always excited about the event, but yeah. there's not as much hope, maybe. Yeah, we're well, <laughs> yeah. part of it. Yeah, we don't, exactly. we don't, yeah. we don't always have the that's, representation that we wish we that's had. That's a nice Olympics. way of talking about this, but <laughs> sure. let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the politics here. Clearly, politics made their way onto the a field, or I guess platform in this sure. case. Mm -hmm. um, is that even legal within the, you know, the authority that is that is, that is running this championship? Well, officially it's illegal, but it's not something new. Um, we saw what happened with Oris Sasson three years ago. Okay. And uh, in a situation like this, when you have Israeli athletes and um, mostly Muslim athletes in competitions like this, it happens. And it's not a new thing. You can go all the way back to uh, the Berlin Olympics in 36 or in Moscow in 1980. In every uh, competitive atmosphere with nations, politics will get in the way. But, what, but wasn't that already, you know, a big contentious issue with the IJF, with the International Judo Federation, uh, after, you know, the Abu Dhabi incident? Because yeah. originally they were going to, what, they were going to ban Israel completely. Yeah, they, they were, were going to ban and they reached an agreement. And as far as I know, there was a specific agreement between the International Judo Federation, the Israeli Judo Federation, and the Egyptian Judo Federation to avoid exactly cases like this. And still mm -hmm. it happens. It happened, it happens, it will happen. Um, you're going to try to, to fix it any way you can, but you can't really avoid it in an atmosphere like this, in my opinion. Right, I mean, but are there going to be any repercussions for at least, you know, the Iranian player or the Egyptian player? M in this maybe, case? I don't think against the Iranian player yeah. because you can't really blame him. You can't say you lost on purpose because right. you can't prove it. But uh, the Egyptian? The Egyptian judo is a lot about uh, respect, mutual mm -hmm. respect and putting politics aside. So I think maybe a fine, maybe a warning. I don't think it's going to be something serious because you have to understand that inside the federations themselves, there are also poli mm -hmm. political issues. So I don't think it's going to be such a big um, uh, sanction against mm -hmm. the Egyptian Federation or this athlete specifically. But I think maybe a warning not, not to let something like that happen in the Olympics because then it's a much bigger stage and they don't want similar things to happen there. All right, so the last question is, can you just tell us what sports very quickly we should keep our, our eyes out for in the upcoming mm. Olympics for well, Israel? Well, judo, obviously, judo? after we saw. Anything else? Uh, we're always good at sailing. Um, we're trying, mm. we also have uh, climbing in the next Olympics, okay. like uh, rock climbing and wall climbing. Sure. We have some Israeli athletes. You don't always know, especially a year before, but judo is always big. Um, so maybe next year we'll have the same debate, but only about sports, not about politics. All right, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks here. for having me. Thank you. Moving on, following in United States President Donald Trump's footsteps, Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez now says that he recognizes Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And his comments come as he prepares to visit Israel for the inauguration of his nation's new diplomatic office. Now, this yeah, new okay. office will not replace the Honduran embassy in Tel Aviv, though. Rather, it will be a supplement to it. And in the meantime, after Israel asked that Honduras move its embassy entirely, Honduras replied that it's analyzing and evaluating such a relocation in the international and national contexts. Then taking credit for this dramatic move is Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's wife, Sarah Netanyahu. 
She made the announcement via a Facebook video with Culture Minister Miri Regev at her side. And citing her trip to Guatemala last year, Netanyahu credited her conversation with Guatemalan President Jimmy Morales and his wife for this diplomatic development. Morales, she said, called up his good friend Orlando, and from there the dialogue on moving the embassy began. And Orlando is set to arrive on Saturday to make it official. Now beyond making Israel happy, though, Honduras hopes that this diplomatic trade office will deepen bilateral trade with Israel regarding cyber issues, crime-fighting, water, and agriculture. And as for other embassies, Trump famously recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital back in 2017, a decision which sparked considerable tensions between the United States and the Palestinians. Next, Guatemala and Paraguay decided to do the same, although with Paraguay the move was short-lived when the decision was reversed. And then finally, Brazil is still mulling over whether it too will follow the trend. In other news, the Lebanese military is claiming they opened fire on three Israeli drones that crossed into Lebanon's territory on Wednesday night. Now, the drones then returned to Israel after drawing Lebanon's fire, but Israel has essentially confirmed the reports, and the army isn't elaborating on what the drones were up to. What the IAF spokesperson did say was that the drones completed their mission and no damage was caused, despite the fact that the video from Lebanon shows how the army opened fire into the air towards the Israeli UAVs. This latest incident comes as tensions are growing along the Israel-Lebanon border, especially following an earlier drone attack on Beirut over the weekend in which Lebanese President Aoun called for a declaration of war. Israel, however, has not confirmed any participation in that event. Israel and the U.S. are actually now pushing the United Nations to increase the deployment and jurisdiction of U.N. peacekeepers in southern Lebanon. They say the Hezbollah terror group has rendered the world body practically useless. In a video released on Fox News, Hezbollah men can even be seen attacking a UNIFIL vehicle and sending it on fire. The U.N. Security Council is set to vote on Thursday to extend UNIFIL and the United Nations interim force in Lebanon's mandate. Meanwhile, as Israeli and Iranian forces continue to clash in the field, Israel's Foreign Minister Israel Katz is now taking aim at Tehran diplomatically by calling on the UK to follow the United States' footsteps in categorizing the IRGC as a terror organization. And already earlier this year, the UK declared Iranian proxy Hezbollah to be a terror group. So in a meeting with British Foreign Minister Dominic Raab on Wednesday, Katz simply pressed for Downing Street to go one step further. In fact, Katz even argued that the new terror designation would be the appropriate and just response to Tehran's hostile behavior. Though Rob, for his part, has not yet commented on the matter, and then speaking of, of Iran's hostilities, after multiple tit-for-tat attacks in the Persian Gulf, the United States digitally attacked and neutralized an Iranian data facility, which was used to target oil tankers in the region. And according to United States officials, speaking with the New York Times, the cyber strike on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard's intelligence group diminished Iran's ability to conduct covert attacks in the future. But at the same time, United States Sec Defense Secretary Mark Esper said that the U.S. is not seeking conflict with Iran. Rather, quote, we want to engage with them diplomatically. Tehran, on the other hand, coming off of the strike and the G7 summit in France, maintains that while the United States engages in economic warfare against Iran, no diplomatic agreement could possibly come about, or at least not until the U.S. goes back to upholding its end of the 2015 JCPOA, which is very unlikely to occur. 
we spoke to the United States. We spoke at length with the United States. We, re we reached an agreement, and they need to implement the agreement that we had reached before they expect to have more time. Palestinian terrorists in the Gaza Strip fired yet another rocket towards southern Israel on Wednesday night, triggering sirens across the northern Gaza border area. The rocket didn't cause any injuries, though, because it landed back within an open area in the Strip. Israel holds the Hamas terror group responsible for any violence and has responded with airstrikes against Hamas observation posts in the northern Gaza Strip. While no damages have been reported, sirens in Israel have sent thousands scrambling toward shelters, including at a children's swimming event in Nativ HaSara. A local resident from the scene says that there was a great panic as 80 kids crammed quickly into the protected area. After initially blaming the incident on Israel, Hamas official Musa Abu Marzouk has also announced on Thursday that 10 people in the Strip have been arrested in connection with the bombing earlier this week. The explosion killed three Hamas police officers and wounded several others. This comes after multiple rocket attacks since the weekend aimed at southern Israeli towns, one of which similarly ended a local music festival in Sderot, sending thousands running for cover. Now, despite plenty of speculation to the contrary, the Trump administration is vowing that their peace plan will not be revealed before the September 17th Israeli elections. And President Trump's special envoy to the Middle East, Jason Greenblatt, tweeted as much on Wednesday saying that those interested in seeing what the plan entails will just have to wait until after elections. But if you're confused, you're not alone. The administration does seem to have gone back and forth over when the deal of the century will be released. Just this week at the G7 summit, for example, Trump said that he may release the plan before the elections, even though he said the exact opposite just a week before. And now, of course, we have flip-flopping news once again. But at any rate, whatever is released will follow up to the Peace to Prosperity Summit in Bahrain. That conference, spearheaded by Trump's Middle East peace envoy and son-in-law Jared Kushner, promised the Palestinians a $50 billion economic stimulus plan if they played ball with advancing peace negotiations. The Palestinians, however, are not interested and dismiss the package as extortion, before even hearing what the political dimensions of the outline will be. But in fact, nobody yet knows any details. Will the plan advocate for the Palestinians' right of return? What will borders in Jerusalem look like? How about the government authority? The whole world is waiting on edge. With the White House flip-flopping on the release date of its long-awaited peace plan, serious questions on what it entails and how viable its bullet points are remain. Well, joining us now with the analysis is Mark Schulman, columnist for Newsweek and editor of HistoryCentral.com. Thank you so much for coming in. So why is this deal going back and forth? Well, President Trump is impulsive, that we all know. And he really wants this deal. The only thing I think he knew anything about before he became president was the Middle East peace police plan. He wanted to make the deal of the century. He's been talking about it since before he's president. He wants it. On the other hand, he impulsively said that the G7, that he's going to bring it out before the presidential, before the Israeli elections. And then I'm sure he got pushback immediately from Prime Minister Netanyahu, because the last thing Prime Minister Netanyahu wants right now is the Trump peace plan. Because even though by most standards, I'm sure the Trump peace plan will be very positive towards the views of the Likud and the right in Israel, it won't be everything they want. And right now, Prime Minister Netanyahu is working on a plan that basically says he has to get every single right-wing voter possible. But, okay, so, but what are the political implications of teeter-tottering? And, and especially within Israel, like, why not, why, why would that be such a big deal? Because everybody would have to react to it, not just Netanyahu. True, but the fact of the matter is he's identified with Trump. In other words, he's 100%, one of the reasons people should vote for Prime Minister Netanyahu is they say, look what the great relationship he has with President Trump. 
they don't know that poison palace that really is, but okay. They vote because they think that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is very close to President Trump. So if President Trump comes out with a plan that's not 100% what the right wing in Israel wants, that's going to say to some right wing voters, no, 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 I can't vote for Likud, I have to vote for uh, Yemin, mm. Yemina, excuse me, because they're gonna, the ones who are going to protect me from this terrible uh, Trump peace plan. And that's what Netanyahu really doesn't want to see happen. All right, so what are the chances that the plan gets accepted either way? Because that's, you know, one of the big Look, questions. Look, it's, it's so small. I mean, the reality is we have two sides that are not ready for any sort of peace plan. The Palestinians have inherently the fact there is not one Palestinian group. There's the Palestinians, Hamas, and Gaza, and what's left of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And then there's us, who has a government. Well, we don't know what the government's going to be. So, I mean, let's say we have a government, because we don't have a government right now. We have a transition government. But assuming we have a right-wing government, I can't see them also agreeing to anything that requires any sort of concessions on our part. Uh, look, the Palestinians seem unwilling to make those basic compromises that are required. And of course, the Trump administration has, I think, made every mistake along the way. They think by squeezing them some more, they'll get more out of them. And they've cut off the aid. They've done all the things they've done. But uh, my experience has been that the Palestinians, the one thing they sort of hold on to is their honor and respect. And if you push it too hard, you're going to get nowhere. And I think that's what's happened with the Trump plan. So, okay, so bouncing off of that then, do you think that there's another country, perhaps Russia or even Germany right now, we see Abbas speaking with Merkel about a, about a different, you know, maybe the European-led plan. Do you see a different country filling the United States' role as mediator? Look, the United States has weakened in the world without a question of a doubt because suddenly no country really respects America the way they did because they have no idea what American foreign policy is. So yes, there are other countries that could move forward. Certainly Putin on one hand seems to have good relations with everybody. On the other hand, no one still has the power that the United States does. No one gives Israel the amount of aid that uh, the United States does. Uh, no one is, America, Israel is dependent on the United States in terms of its trade. So I don't really see anyone coming forth. Um, on the other hand, America is much weakened. And the question is, can a weakened America actually do anything? We have to keep in mind something else. We're about that. We're in already an election year in the United States. I mean, they always say in terms of any sort of peace plan in the Middle East, the one time you don't do it is in an American election year. Uh, so it seems so unlikely that this mythical plan is ever going to see the light of day. But, you know, we've seen more surprises from the Trump administration than I can count, so I wouldn't count it out completely. All right. Well, on that note... We're turning to our next story. Thank you so, Thank much, you so much for joining us. Rabbi Eitan Schnell, the father of the teen murdered in a West Wing bombing last week, has finally been released from the hospital on Thursday after sustaining massive injuries when his family outing took a tragic turn. The rabbi and two of his children were hit by a bomb planted by a natural spring in the West Bank, and the blast immediately killed Schnurb's 17-year-old daughter, Rina, while badly injuring him and his son, Dvir. Also, sadly, while he's said to be progressing nicely, Dvir remains hospitalized. But despite the horrific attack and in the wake of his daughter's death, Schnurb remains optimistic, choosing to spread light on her behalf. He's thanking doctors at Jerusalem's Chalitza Ein Kerem Hospital for their holy work. And meanwhile, it's still unclear if the suspects behind the attacks have been caught. The Shin Bet will not yet confirm reports that the perpetrators have been apprehended. With imminent threats of Iranian or Iranian-backed explosive UAVs attacking Israel in the north, technology firms are developing systems to override enemy drones, thwart attacks, and gather information. The systems being developed will enable Israeli operatives to take full control of the drones and land them safely for further analysis. And one such company is Skylock, whose product manager Asaf Lebovitz says that its system can detect hostile drones at up to a range of 3.5 kilometers. 
It's also able to control up to 200 drones simultaneously, which is fortunate because the issue has become a hot-button topic during the last week, especially after Israel launched several airstrikes in Syrian territory in response to a Hezbollah-backed cell preparing to launch a drone. Unusually, however, Israel immediately took responsibility for those airstrikes to serve as a warning to Iran that it has superior intelligence and resolve. Israeli officials boasted that the Jewish state is prepared to do whatever is necessary to protect its territory and citizens. And then finally, Skylock is not the only company involved in disrupting attacking drones. Rafael recently introduced its own anti-drone system as well, which is already operational. All right. Now, I am so excited mm -hmm. about what Netflix is about to drop for us. Oh, Aren't yeah. You Pretty much everything that they do is amazing. Yeah. Well, actor Sasha Baron Cohen is known for his epic comedic roles like Borat, Bruno, and Ali G. But he's been attempting to branch out into more dramatic territory for a while now. And starting next week, Balon will star as the legendary Israeli spy Eli Cohen in Netflix's six-episode miniseries called The Spy. Let's take a look. If your country asked you to risk your life, would you do it? This is the opportunity for me to give you the life that I promised you, Nadi. My name... My name is Kamel Amin Thabit. This is not a game, Kamel. You are either him or you are dead. Let's have an open, honest conversation on what my husband does. Thinking of the clothes, he doesn't work anymore. I can't put him away. Kamel isn't real. That life isn't real. You are Ellie Cohen. You need to remember that. It's a bit late for that. Amazing. So excited. Yeah, but that is... Okay, well, Nittany Manson is joining us with this story. Mm. Nittany, I don't know. I, I kind of find this to be a bit strange seeing <laughs> Sasha Rowan going in that type of role, but yeah, for me. It, it does look like it's going to be good. What do you think, Nittany? Yeah, I mean, it looks amazing. I have to tell you, when I saw the trailer for the first time, I had goosebumps. It's so weird to see Sasha Baron Cohen in a role like this, but, you know, he has been trying for a while to kind of branch out with these kinds of roles um, and further distance himself from the ones that we really know him for. Yeah, I mean, I know, f I for one, always think of, like, Borat when I think of it's Cohen. impossible to think exactly. of Typically, yeah. Yeah, and while he's amazing in those types of roles and those characters, mm. I think that it'll be really exciting to see a different side of him, and I think the world will really, really enjoy watching it. Well, you know that they say uh, that the comics usually are darker on the inside, so maybe a heavier role will be good for him. Uh, but, yeah. but what exactly will this show be covering? Well, this miniseries will give us a glimpse into the life of Israeli spy and legend Eli Cohen. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, Cohen's history, he was an Israeli agent who smuggled information from Syria in the early 1960s. Um, and the series will explore how his double life really impacted him on a more personal level. After all, Cohen was just a man, and the intense stress that he was under really impacted him psychologically and caused tension between him and his wife mm -hmm. back in Israel. The series also seems to suggest that Cohen was so enmeshed with his fake Syrian persona that at times it was really difficult for him to separate his real life from his cover. Which is interesting because well, that's, that's kind of like Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. Well, that's what he does with all these crazy characters like Borat and Ali G. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine having been that deep undercover. I mean, I'm sure yeah. that it messes with your psyche. It makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's, it's got to be yeah. a tough assignment and a tough, tough to really change who you are. Um, and of course, Cohen's story did end in tragedy, uh, with him being publicly executed in Syria for espionage. Wow. 
But in Israel today, he is hailed as a hero as his intelligence proved instrumental during the Six-Day War. Yeah, I mean, this is a really important story to be told. Cohen, like you said, has become such a big part mm -hmm. of Israeli history. Uh, so who is taking this project on? There must be a big director here. Yeah, so the series is written and directed by Gideon Raff, whose mm. other works include uh, Israeli drama Khatufim, wow. which was eventually adapted into the uh, in the States by what became to what became known as the very successful show Homeland, starring Claire Danes. Um, and although for this year it's a little late for the spy to qualify for the Emmys, I think we can really cross our fingers for Sasha to nab a nomination next year. Um, I think that his work in this show really seems to be incredibly impressive. Yeah, I guess we're going to see. Mike I'm, I'm excited. I know he's been really... Yeah. I know that Sasha Baron Cohen has been pushing to do a serious role for a yeah. long time, so I'm yeah. really excited about it. I just hope I can separate Borat from all that. <laughs> just fine. keep it separate. <laughs> all right, on that note, let's take a look at the weather forecast. Tonight should be partly cloudy and warm with a low of 79 or 24 degrees Celsius. And then over the weekend, you can expect more cloudy skies and highs of about 88 or 32 degrees Celsius. That's it for today's news. Today's exchange rate is 3.52 shekels for the American dollar. For more news from ILTV, please subscribe to ILTV on Facebook and on Instagram. I'm Aaron Porras. And I'm Natasha Kierczak. Thanks so much for watching and see you next week. Mm -hmm.